Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm well. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, uh, the studios are getting really into cloning. Digital cloning, that is. Uh, one of the contentious points in negotiations between the Screen Actors Guild and the studios involves something actors have never really had to worry about before. Uh, namely, whether or not they are, you know, strictly speaking, necessary, at least in the background. Uh, all right, this flashpoint involves uh, so-called background actors, right? More commonly known as extras when you're not talking to them. Uh, turns out the studios are taking life-size scans of extras in the hopes of making extras, well, kind of kind of obsolete. Talking to NPR, actress Alexandria Rubel-Kaba, I think I'm getting that right, said that while working on the set of WandaVision, she was told to report to a trailer where she and dozens of other extras were told to step in front of a camera and allow it to take pictures of their bodies from all angles. After 15 minutes of this, uh, Disney Studios had a copy of her likeness forever, in perpetuity, to, as best as anyone can tell, use in any production they want to forever for no extra compensation. Now, the studios have pushed back pretty strongly against this. They say, no, no, these replicas are only for use in a single shoot. Uh, but if you look at the papers that are being signed, that's not entirely clear. Uh, and, uh, you know, Lord knows legal niceties never really gotten in the way of studios before. Um, even if it is a case, even if they are just saying using it for this one production, it's easy to imagine in a, a world in which studios pay an extra for a single day's work, $187 uh, right now, as it happens, and then use that extra's likeness for weeks of work in the, in the aftermath, saving thousands of dollars per extra not used. On the one hand, you know, putting a stop to this sort of thing seems like a fairly straightforward priority for the union. Replacing actors with digital likenesses, even background actors, is a pretty slippery slope. You want to put the kibosh on that as quickly as possible. You know, what if I don't want to appear on Mario Vision, the WandaVision actress asked NPR. And this gets to just one of the many thorny questions here, right? Set aside the finances of it all. Set aside, you know, money paid or not paid. If movies and TV shows are art, and we all like to think of movies and TV shows as art, then extras absolutely have a right not to partake in artistic enterprises they do not approve of, don't want to be in, don't want to be associated with. But productions have been trying to figure out forever what to do with extras and the extras costs incurred by them, right? Um, one personal anecdote here. This is just a funny funny little story from my reporting. Uh, once upon a time, I reported on location uh, at an adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's Harrison Bergeron. This short film was called 2081. Fun fact, start a pre-social network Army Hammer as Harrison Bergeron. One of the sets there was a theater, right? Like it's a theater where live performances happen. In the case of this film specifically, it was a ballet performance that was taking place. Filling the seats... Uh, were extras, naturally, but also inflatable dummies with wigs and tuxes placed on them, uh, put around in all the seats to make the venue seem fuller than it was. An extra cost, you know, at the time, 150 bucks or whatever. A dummy cost a fraction of that. These digital scans are the modern equivalent of that dummy, but, you know, uh, not. On top of that, you have the COVID considerations, right? Like, while most of the testing protocols have been dismantled over the last few months, it's still a looming threat in the age of lockdowns and everything else. When a nine-figure production can be halted because one extra somewhere pops positive for COVID, well, doesn't it make sense to eliminate as many potential vectors of disease as possible? I guess what I'm saying here is that I can see both sides of this argument to a certain extent. Uh, Alyssa, are you excited for the future of digital golems popping up over and over again in every movie uh, in perpetuity? 
No, I am not. And I'm also not a fan of companies uh, asking workers to take their word for things that they might or might not do. And, you know, I mean, I think if if studios want to scan and, you know, make multiple copies of background actors, that should be something that's upfront in a job or casting description. It's something that where the compensation for it should be negotiated. And also, frankly, there should be some sort of discussion of whether an actor has a right to ask for that scan to be destroyed after the work is over so it can't be reused against their consent, right? I mean, there are sort of beyond the like labor abuses questions um, in an era of deep fake pornography, for example, there are fairly substantial issues around potential misuse of this kind of artifact, I think is maybe the best word to put it. And so, you know, if the studios are serious that they have a sort of principled argument for how to use this stuff, that it's limited, you know, put it in a contract and then put it in the casting descriptions and, you know, commit yourself to doing what you're saying you're going to do. Because asking people who are making pretty minimal money from this work to take huge corporations at their word for something as sensitive as sort of a permanently accessible and manipulatable likeness of themselves is insane. And nobody should do that. I mean, certainly if I were, you know, Julia Roberts or Zendaya or, you know, any of the Chris's, there is no world in which my agents would not hammer out those terms and you know, it's insane to let the studios pretend that they won't abuse background actors because, of course, they will. Let me just change the situation here slightly. So let's say instead of, uh, you know, uh, on a movie set, you know, you have the the extras come and they're, they're there. They sit there around craft services most of the day waiting for their call to go out to wherever it is they're supposed to go, right? What if uh, instead of like calling those people over to a trailer and kind of surreptitiously taking a lifelike recreation of them forever, instead of doing that, you just put out a call that says, hey, we need digital models. We want you to come to a studio. We're going to take your likeness and we'll pay you a thousand bucks and we are going to use you to populate the background of movies forever. You know, you're going to be the extra in the Coliseum. You're going to be the uh, cheering guy on the side of the street when the fire engine goes by in the disaster movie. Would that be acceptable or no? I mean, I think that, you know, a sort of alternative to that might be a body scan bank, right? Where, you know, people are willing to license their likenesses and, you know, they can put stipulations in here. Like, I don't want this license to be used for full frontal nudity. I don't want it to be used under these circumstances. And, you know, either that's sort of negotiated for an upfront fee or, you know, studios can like sort of pick and choose who they want to use. Maybe it's a subscription system for the studios. Maybe it's a, you know, sort of lower cost license use, but, Actors could make more money out of a single scan, et cetera. So I think, I mean, I think there is a, it is possible to set up a model of using this stuff that 
is less likely to be abusive than hauling someone into a trailer and being like, your continued employment is conditioned on us taking the scan of use, but that we won't use forever. We'll be principled. We'll be honest, right? I mean, you can trust us. We're Hollywood. Um, and so, you know, whether it is sort of clear upfront contracts about single use of this stuff, whether it is a licensable bank of scans, I think there is a way to do this, but you know, it should not be based on a sort of honor system. Like, this is not something that can be handled with a pinky promise. Yeah, I mean, Peter, this this really does seem to be mostly an issue of informed consent, right? Like, you can't you can't just spring this on somebody in the midst of the rest of their job and be like, uh, come do this. You know, read this, read this 10-page release that you're signing. You know, I, like, I, I, I don't find that to be terribly reasonable, um, but I do feel like it is kind of, I, I feel like this sort of thing is inevitable. Uh, on a certain level. Most of the issue ends up being resolved via contract clarity. And I think that, that that's basically how the, the issues that we're talking about here ends up being resolved. I also don't think this is quite as novel as it sounds, even though it is it does present some novel issues. We already have uh, a whole world of sort of uh, paid models who end up being photographed for different reasons. And if you are, uh, obviously, if you're, you know, a highly paid supermodel or even just sort of somebody at the top of their game, right, uh, doing um, modeling for a, a big fashion company, there's quite strict uh, rules and about what how those images can be used, whereas some people uh, pose no in, in knowingly. I mean, and they're they're doing it, and they know what they're doing. But they're posing for images that end up. It's a you get paid a uh, one time, and then this is you know stock photography, and somebody can put this you know in, in, like at the top of a you know, whatever kind of article they want, right? As long as they're, they've paid the fee and you don't get any percentage of that as the model, right? Because you are a less successful model. And that's just sort of how modeling and photography of the, for those people works. And the stuff gets used against, like, I wouldn't say against their consent, but they have given away the right to have consent one way or the other on that sort of thing. And that's a thing that's going to end up happening here. I think, the, I think that we actually should be thinking about this 10 years down the road, 15, 20 years down the road, because the inevitability here is not just that people are going to be scanned and used as background actors. The inevitability, I think, goes gets weirder than that. And it's going to be that artists, that effects artists, are going to be able to use AI and use their brains, right, and, and, and artistic tools to create humans that are based on real people but are not actually real people that are like a, a a weird, sunny Peter, you know, hybrid, right? And it's neither of us, even though the artist was like, hey, AI, I want you to pull features from both of these bearded guys uh, who are about 40 years old, like, right? And then we, then we get like a, then we get like a combo version. And do either of us then have a right to sue? Well, it's kind of based on us, but not exactly, right? And, and like, are they using our likeness? No, not directly. And so like this, this to me, like the specific thing of can you use an individual person's likeness after you've scanned them? That's pretty straightforward. You put that in contractual language and some people will say you can pay me a thousand bucks for one day's worth of work and then I will never like that's it. You can use my image for forever. And some people will say, wait, no, you can't do that. I'm not going to submit to that sort of scan or that sort of licensing regime and contracts work that sort of thing out. But it's just going to get so much weirder from here as technology becomes capable of producing quite lifelike human images, not just stills, but effectively sort of animated puppets of quasi people who are not real. And like that's that just looks to me like it is coming. And I think that's going to be genuinely novel. 
right? That's going to be a, a, a situation we haven't been in. But the other thing is, I think there's sort of no way to avoid any of this. Because even if, even if the Actors Guild can get all of the big studios to just promise they'll, not just to promise, but to contractually agree to, we will never do anything like this, and you actually get the studios to not scan people and not sort of use people as manipulatable digital dolls for the background uh, images of their movies, then this technology is going to become cheap enough that people who aren't affiliated with the studios, independent filmmakers, people working on YouTube, people working in other formats and other forums, non-studio people, whether it's advertisers, whether it's weirdos in film school, you know, just making stuff for TikTok, uh, other sort of smaller organizations that are that exist outside of the union structure are going to end up doing this. And the background actors are going to have to compete with those people somehow or another. And the union contract may delay the date in which that happens uh, until that technology is very cheap. But ultimately, they're going to have to end up competing with digital background doubles with digital extras, and they're going to have to find some value add, some reason to use real people rather than to use the digital extras that are coming and and will be, like I said, in many cases, not based on any single person or frankly, even two obvious people. They will be mashups of a thousand different people and their features so that no one has any kind of real rights to their to like a portion of their image hey man you used my eyebrows like no you this yeah. doesn't matter well, like can i like, all right i'm gonna I'll, i'm gonna hop on the other side here i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, say this is a reason why it is good that organizations like sag and other unions exist to collectively bargain this sort of thing out of existence like i think there is an argument to be made by the unions that say if you want to make a sag approved feature film, you cannot use any of these things. Like if you want to work with Meryl Streep on your movie or Keanu Reeves on your movie or whoever, you cannot use these weird digital creations. We won't allow it. And like, I actually understand SAG making this an existential line in the sand. You cannot do this sort of thing stipulation of any contract. I can see that case and I can understand it. And I frankly even kind of agree with it because as you say, Peter, once you start down this digital path, there's no stopping it. And you are headed very closely to like the Simone future, you know, speaking of AI, whatever's Alyssa, I'm sorry. What were you, what were you going to say? Oh no. And I think, you know, we're talking about this in the context of Hollywood, but I do wonder if we're going to see legislation more clearly enshrining people's rights to their images and their work. I mean, you're you're seeing some of this already with the authors who are suing various AI companies for using their, you know, their text as training material for large language models without their consent. And I can entirely see a future in which the federal government sort of lays down strict guidelines for how you can use people's images. You know, it's like you. we sort of joke around, about, you know, Peter, you joke about saying like, oh, you wouldn't be able to say you can't use my eyebrows. But, you know, what if there is a clear law about what you can use to train these models or, you know, sort of as the, how you have to, you know, license or handle the distribution of, you know, people's images. Because to a certain extent, what you're talking about here is, the right to a self, right? And the right to self-determination in the sense that, you know, you <laughs> you have the right to be a coherent person who makes decisions and not have a facsimile of yourself, you know, kind of wandering around out there, giving the impression that you are doing or saying or 
behaving in a way that has nothing to do with the decisions that you would make yourself. It's a a very good argument when it comes to images that actually that clearly resemble a specific person. We've already seen that to some extent um, in some video games where some video game type characters have clearly been closely based on uh, real life performers, but not quite so closely enough, right? Voiced by different people, you know, and, and with somewhat different features. They're just kind of there. It's like, you know how you used to like, uh, you still have this, but you know how like Hollywood uh, casting agents will say, we need a Meryl Streep type. Well, video games can just give you a Meryl Streep type that isn't actually any specific person. That is just a kind of a type of like that, right? And that that sort of thing happens in video games already, and it's not been the case in that they have had to pay anything to to sort of borrow your type. And you see this actually in screenplays too. I mean, Reservoir Dogs has a bunch of elements from taking of Pelham 123. It's obviously quite transformative as well. And I think we're going to get into situations where People may have a right to themselves and to their own image, but to the type that they represent that is not spe- that is not quite specific enough to them, those things are going to be able to be created without without your input, and and it's not obvious. Uh, fair use, I mean, right, which which we all rely on as journalists just to like print stuff and talk about things and uh, and to do criticism. Um, fair use says that as long as a, a use is transformative, then you don't have to pay for it. Uh, and I think we are going to see some – this will almost certainly be tested in the courts, and we're going to see some novel um, instances of transformative use where, on the one hand, it is clearly based on a person who did not consent to be involved, and also it is not exactly that person and not close enough that you can really say this that is that not person – I'm sorry, this is not what fair use is. Fair use is specifically designed not to be transformative per se, but also as a comment upon the thing uh, the thing that is being transformed. I mean, this is, a, you know... Comment or criticism or transformation. Yeah. But it's not, it's not and. I, I, well, I, I don't know. I think that this is the sort of thing where once you start getting into the nitty-gritty of it, a lot of conventions that we hold are just going to fall by the wayside. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, I... I do not, I do not think fair use was designed to create uh, an, uh, a bottomless reservoir of digital likenesses culled from publicly available Facebook pages, you know? I, I, like, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work or make sense to me. You're right. It's probably going to have to be litigated in the courts because this, is, I, this really is Brave New World sort of stuff. I, like, there, are, there are issues here that we have not considered fully uh, that we're just kind of steaming ahead with um, that are, I think, really at best tricky and at worst terribly dangerous. And I think, you know, we're we're seeing some of these debates also in questions about, you know, sort of monetization of data. Um, you know, to what extent are our expressed desires as captured by what we type into Google ourselves, right? I mean, are, you know, the sort of aggregate profile of ourselves that are created by our postings on social media. These are really interesting questions. And they come at a time both when technology is advancing incredibly quickly and when we had this huge experiment in virtual living that is leading people to revalue the real. And, you know, I, I can't say I'm super excited to, you know, someday log on to the software and realize that I'm chatting with avatars of you guys, but I am very glad that I have the two of you here to discuss this with as we embark on this dystopia. I'm already an avatar. But I've the, just assigned the AI to do my part on the podcast. 
I'm making a cocktail. So you can just mix cocktails all the time. The Avatar's already mixing cocktails. The Avatar's come up with cocktails Peter could never imagine with its its AI brain. Can you can you believe it? Involve juicing pineapples. Can you believe it? All right. What do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that digital replicants are taking over for flesh and blood humans on the big and small screen, Alyssa? Uh, it's a controversy. Also, um, you know, solidarity with SAG after for fighting this one for all of us. Peter. It is a little bit of a controversy. On the other hand, since you said digital replicants, I'm now excited for somebody to make a kind of spiritual successor to Blade Runner using this as the, the basis for it. Like our, our It's just about podcasting. Are our digital background extras humans with souls? Controversy, but now I am starting to formulate a pitch in my head that's like a Johnny Mnemonic, but uh, also Blade Runner. And you got guys yeah. running through the multi- uh, the multiverse of the internet, trying to eliminate all of the versions of me, the the Peter the Peter Bunch hybrid that has been created and is terrorizing, <laughs> is terrifying the world. I, I a controversy, but good good movie idea. Are we taking away from this that I'm the irreplaceable member of the podcast? Well, you are the only woman, so I like we can't really meld you with me or Peter. That doesn't make any sense because you know the the binary of gender and all that. All right, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus this Friday. Uh, we're going to be paying tribute to William Friedkin, who passed away on Monday at the age of 87, uh, talking about some of our favorite of his movies. uh, And, uh, you know, again, just kind of paying tribute to one of the greats. Now on to the main event. They cloned Tyrone, which hit Netflix a couple weeks ago and has picked up some momentum as audiences have found this odd little indie flick. John Boyega stars as Fontaine, a gangster who runs drugs and hassles pimps like Slick Charles, who's played by Jamie Foxx, for protection money. Slick Charles' number one girl, Yo-Yo, played by Teona Paris, wants out of town. But before she can get away, she hears Fontaine get gunned down. Slick Charles actually sees it happen. But fun fact, Fontaine is back the very next day. He's just fine, thank you. He desires his money once again. Slick Charles freaks out, and the three of them uh, begin a quest to figure out what is going on in this town. Why is there a clone of Fontaine underneath the trap house? What mysterious concoction is being put into fried chicken, grape drink, and hair-straightening products to control the local population? How are hip-hop songs at a strip club being used to hypnotize townspeople into turning into violent mobs? What is Kiefer Sutherland's Nixon up to? Uh, That the villain is a white guy with a southern drawl named Nixon using fried chicken and grape drink to control the black population should demonstrate precisely how subtle this film is, which is to say, not very. Um, But if you haven't really picked up on some of that earlier in the film, like, for example, there's an advertisement for a soda called Soma. Soma. Get it? Uh, Well, I'm I'm not sure what to do with it if you haven't picked up on it. You know, get your ass to a 10th grade English class. The clone Tyrone succeeds not despite that lack of subtlety, but because of it. Uh, Jewel Taylor, who directed and co-wrote the film with Tony Rettenmeyer, uh, leans into the comic absurdity of their premise with real glee. And uh, my biggest complaint about this movie, frankly, is that it, it... it has that Netflix bloat problem. It's two hours long. It doesn't need to be, and it really saps some of the pace and energy from the picture. Uh, I, you know, I after watching this, I rewatched They Live, John Carpenter's classic commentary on Reagan era America that clocks in about half an hour shorter than this. It's the sort of movie that you really need to zip along in order to stop people from questioning the basic premise. And I, you know, if you if you if you don't keep it moving, you just get people starting to say, well, you know. Um, is it really that mysterious why people prefer simple pleasures to overthrowing the whole system and not knowing what's going to come after? Most of us are Joey Pants in the Matrix, right? We just want our fake steaks that taste good. We're not Neo. 
It's all right. Peter, are you now awake to the world in a way that you never were before this? Has this movie opened your eyes? Are you asking me if this movie made me woke? Has this movie made you woke? I don't think that this movie had much of an impact on that one way or the other, but it did occupy a couple of hours of my time rather enjoyably. This is a this is not a great movie, but it's a superior Netflix movie for one thing, and it's also a lot better than a lot of the stuff we've seen in the theaters this summer. I mean, I certainly think this is better than Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which the Jewel Taylor also co-wrote. Um it's, you know, it's much better than the most recent Indiana Jones film. And it's the kind of movie that I'm gl- that makes me both glad that Netflix exists and also very frustrated with Netflix. Because on the one hand, this movie probably wouldn't have happened if not for Netflix. And it's kind of at its weird inability to figure out what it wants to do. It is too much money problem. And like, oh, sure, that's an interesting concept. You've got Jamie Foxx. Let's go ahead and do this. So it's good that this movie exists because this is a pretty good movie. It's the kind of the kind of movie that I used to just really enjoy discovering in a movie theater back when you used to see oddball films occasionally kind of come out through that the year. It's the, in, in fact, it's the sort of thing that you used to frequently see sh- uh, show up at the end of September like in that sort of dead zone right after Labor Day. One of these odd little genre films that is just clever enough and works just well enough that you're like, yeah, you know what? I'm glad I saw that. And then you tell your friends about it. And maybe it becomes a big hit on home video afterwards, which, oh, that's, you know, I guess that maybe is the Netflix model. This is, the movie's visually interesting for one thing. It's got like a great little kind of digital kind of, you know, like there's a, there's a, there's a digital film grain to it that I enjoyed. There's a, a real sort of bleak blackness to the, to the light, right? It's just kind of the color in this movie has been sapped in an interesting way. And there's so much kind of the, the darkness just sort of bleeds into all of these shots, right? It's great use of of, uh, of shadow and color. Um, it manages to be absurd without being super silly, right? You could imagine a, a version of this movie. It's a little silly at, at times. I didn't say it was not silly at all, but it, it like has this like kind of finely balanced uh, uh, tonal weirdness to it in which it manages to... Uh, just to to be odd and offbeat and off kilter, without being straight up goofy, and it and it, this is actually like a quite difficult tonal balance that this movie strikes because again it sort of like brings you into like a a kind of a serious but also like crazy sci fi ending and. Uh, makes you think about it just enough, but also is like, well, you know what? There's going to be some shootouts, and there's going to be some very odd bits, and we're going to we're going to emphasize the absurdity of this. You know, and I actually thought about this in since we saw Barbie recently. I, I thought about this as a, a sort of corollary to Barbie, where this movie works, I think, better than Barbie overall. Not it's, again, it's not quite, it's not a, a perfect movie, it's not quite a great one, but it's a good one. And the reason is because it constantly, at the moments where it could just be like. Here, we're going to have something that's just boringly, blatantly political. It doesn't quite do that. A little bit at the end. But most of the movie, what it does is it tra- it's like frames everything as a sort of like absurdist, otherworldly, like you're stuck in this like what the hell is going on here kind of mystery zone. It is more like a John Carpenter movie and less like a, I don't know, like, like something that you could have pulled from Gawker in 2014. And Barbie, like I said, and, you know, when we were talking about that um, last week, Barbie works at its best when it is just an absurdist high concept film. And this movie does the absurdist high concept stuff, uh, again, 
not quite as well as, say, Get Out, but like quite well and consistently well. And it's just and it's got some nice performances and, you know, and like and the visual sensibility works pretty well. And I'm, I'm glad that it exists and I'm glad that we that like this sort of thing is out there, even if it's also only available through Netflix, which does not seem to have promoted it very much. Like I had to find out about this movie basically by reading Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. The Netflix factor here is the most interesting one to me because this is, I think you're right. It's a movie that doesn't get made or at least doesn't get made precisely like this, like starring jo- Jamie Foxx and John Boyega and Teona Paris, right? Like there, there's, there's a lot of money that goes into the casting here that may not otherwise have been there. And it's also good because putting it on the front page of Netflix introduces it to a much broader variety of people than otherwise might have seen it. You know, this is one of those movies where like the best advertising campaign for it really is being like on the homepage of, you know, a uh, hundred million. Did you households. get it on your homepage? Because I had yes. to search for this movie. It was never once recommended or served to me. It definitely got served up to me. It got served up to me in my in my like trending now you know, bar. It was, it was right there. So I don't know. But again, this is a question for like, yeah, for the, for the, for the folks at Netflix. I, I actually would be curious to know exactly how hard this got pushed to people because it definitely, it didn't open huge uh, in terms of the hours watched. It picked up in the second week as word of mouth started to spread. So it, it's, it's a sort of movie that exists because of Netflix, probably has a wider reach because of Netflix. And will in three weeks, it's going to end up being buried at the bottom of a billion different titles uh, with no algorithmic juice behind it, which is uh, kind of frustrating. And I I feel like, you know, that's probably better than it being released by A24 and getting seen by, you know, uh, a half million people in theaters before hitting DVD, but maybe not. I don't know. Alyssa, what did you make of They Cloned Tyrone? Um, I enjoyed it a lot. It could have been 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes shorter. Um, I mean, there's just some self-indulgent, like, I think John Boyega is a fine actor, but, like, there's a lot of just lingering on his face. And it's a very handsome face. It's a very expressive face. There were just a lot of places you could have shaved a little bit off this movie and made it move a little bit faster. And I I appreciate its sort of very specific political paranoia, which actually reminded me of – did you guys ever read the Gary Webb – Dark Alliance series and the San Jose Mercury News. This is a very interesting piece of journalism history. Um, Webb was an investigative journalist and published sort of the, the series that introduced the idea that the CIA was responsible in some way for the crack epidemic. And, you know, the, the reporting has been challenged in certain ways, um, you know, and I think, you know, Webb probably didn't have as much of the goods as he thought he did. But one of the things that was very interesting about the story is that it played a kind of fascinating role in kind of the founding of the black internet in that, you know, this was the story by local paper, came out in 96 um, and spread to a huge national audience uh, in part through black internet users at a time when they were a much smaller percentage of web users relative to white Americans. And, you know, that story, the story, um, you know, is based on the CIA's relationship with the Contras in Nicaragua. And it's far too complicated to explain. But, you know, They Clone Tyrone, you know, is based in sort of a real conspiratorial, you know, somewhat fact-based argument about 
you know, what is being done to Black communities? What are the outside forces working on them without their consent? And, you know, the the way the movie balances that paranoia and expresses it in very funny ways and then throws in, like, random things like Yo-Yo's childhood Nancy Drew obsession. It's just very winning and idiosyncratic. Um, Did you get the sense that this movie was intentionally structured like a Nancy Drew novel? And that that, but that's part 100%. like, yeah, because I was a, I was a Hardy Boys fan and I was yeah. watching this, but like, it's the same thing. It's yeah. exactly how, how the same thing. Yeah. How yeah. many adventures this bitch been on, yes, right? right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like the, the combination of that, again, sort of like white bread staple, you know, and the fact that they had all of the yellow backed covers, you know, I mean, these are three just very fine, appealing actors bringing real life to their types and tropes, right, in a way that is just extremely enjoyable to watch. Um, I met Paris once a long time ago um, and have always just found her incredibly appealing both in person and on screen. And to a certain extent, you know, the fact that she has managed to be in Marvel movies while still managing to make really interesting stuff on the side consistently, um, to me, is kind of the model for, in an ideal world, what a Marvel contract would let you do, right? Like, let you make a bunch of money so you have the freedom to do really interesting stuff in between, like, being CGI'd into, you know, I guess some sort of superhero spacesuit, which is what is happening in the Marvels, um, which is coming out later this year. And so, you know, I'm just, like, to a certain extent, I'm happy for her. I'm happy for John Boyega, who, you know, I think was publicly kind of concerned that he would not be working again in an interesting way after speaking out about just, you know, what he felt like was a really bad experience with the Star Wars franchise. And so, you know, it's it's one of those movies, it's like the system is really imperfect, but sometimes it works in a way that is satisfying and enjoyable. So it's just, you know, for a first-time feature, I think it's really quite assured and idiosyncratic and charming. And I wish it were a little tighter. I wish it didn't have the Netflix bloat problem, but... Um, I'm glad to have watched it. I'm glad it exists. I thought it was very funny. It's funny, Alyssa. You mentioned the uh, the Dark Alliance series of, of stories, or uh, and I I remembered after, while you were discussing it that this is also what the film Kill the Messenger is based on. The Jeremy Renner uh, picture uh, about that nonsense story that was reported in the San Jose Mercury News. Uh, yeah, no, I mean I, I I like this movie a lot. It's it's definitely it's a movie I just I want to like more. Uh, I just yeah. I just wish it had been. I don't know, slightly, slightly tighter, uh, and and almost even maybe more absurd. Frankly, it could have it could have leaned into that even even a little more. Um, I agree with that. I also need to make a correction here. Uh, I misstated. Uh, Jewel Taylor did not write uh, or co-write Transformers: Rise of the Beasts, and I don't know why I thought that. Why did you think uh, that? But I didn't. I, I, I was like, um, oh, that's just that's a, interesting. I didn't. I didn't realize uh, that when uh, you said it. Somehow or another, I got that in my head uh, and did not have the credits up in front of me. Uh, no, he's also a co-writer on Space Jam: New Legacy and Creed Two. And it is just sort of an interesting example of somebody who has been who's like worked on bigger studio films. And here's somebody who had like a weird idea that doesn't fit into what studios are funding traditionally. And Netflix was able to step in and make this movie happen. And that to me is the value of Netflix here is that this is a this is the kind of interesting high concept, like good elevator pitch movie 
that basically works and is certainly worth seeing and worth seeking out. And it wouldn't have happened without Netflix's strange, you know, Mr. Moneybags uh, approach to making movies here. And I, I honestly worry that as we get into a world where Netflix and other streamers are spending less, this is the sort of thing that might um, end up be not making it through the system, uh, you know, five or 10 years from now. Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of thing, if you're if, if Netflix is going to be making movies, it makes way more sense to make stuff like this than, uh, you know, you make five movies like this instead of one Red Notice. And like that one Red Notice may get more hours viewed or whatever but i i mean this is this is just this is this sort of thing is more interesting and better yeah and it's also a nice example of you know how effective practical effects can be right i mean or just you know like set decoration right i mean that scene where fontaine breaks into his mother's room and realizes that she's just a speaker and it's just this like little pa system on the table is so much more affecting and effective than any sort of weird special effect would be. The, you know, the packaging, for example, on the, like, the grape drink, the, um, you know, the chicken boxes, the um, the straightening cream. Who knew creative graphic design applied to a physical thing can have a great effect in a movie? And... You know, when I when I talk about a movie like this having sort of personality and a worldview, you know, it's the combination of the humor and the sort of eye for detail and color. And I just, I really enjoyed looking at it. Um, and whoever, yeah, I need to look up who the costume designer is. But, you know, all credit to the folks who put together Jamie Foxx and Tiana Paris's outfits because they are delightful. I mean, her like sort of trench coat and big hat and Nancy Drew thing is outstanding. Loved it. Uh, So what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on They Clone Tyrone? Alyssa? Thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs up. Thumbs up for me as well. Fun movie. It's on Netflix now. You can watch it the second you turn this podcast off. Speaking of, that's it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. Strong girl will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 